Life's a Mitch. G'day, guys. Welcome back. It's episode 18 of Life's a Mitch. Last week, I um, opened up a little bit about having Crohn's disease, and I got another sufferer of Crohn's, young Madeline, come on and was quite uh, eccentric and very articulate in the way that she spoke about how it's affected her life. So go back, check that one out, and um, also check out the uh, the links I've added as well to sort of educate yourselves if you're not sure what Crohn's disease is. It's an interesting read. So this week, we've got, an- we've got another international guest on. Sticking with the theme of going to the United States again. So, without further ado, sir, can I get you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you know who you are and why you wanted to pop on today, please? Okay, very good. Thank you for having me on, Mitch. Appreciate it. Um, well, my name is Jack Hammer, and if you say it fast, it sounds like Jack Hammer, but it's Sickness. not Hammer. It's it's not Hammer. It's Hammer with a K. Okay. Um, so let's see. Uh, I was born in Baltimore. I live near Baltimore, between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and I am very interested in men's issues or the gender issues of men and boys. Yep. Uh, so I could talk forever about that, you, but I, I don't want to I don't want to just talk. I want you to, you know, to steer me. What do you what? No, that's, how that's, much? That's, it's interesting. So so you, you could probably say you're an activist for men's rights. Is that correct? Yeah, you could say I'm an activist. You could say I'm a researcher. You could say I'm a writer and author. Uh, I was a social worker. I, I went back to school uh, from a career in marketing and IT uh, to go back to school to get a master's in social work because it is very clear to me that there are a lot of important social issues involved in what's really going on with men and boys. Okay. Um, and I want to help bring attention to that fact so that we can all men, women, boys, girls all live happier, healthier, safer, saner, more productive lives. And that's, that's interesting you say, because generally with men, you think, you know, I, I'm not going to go to the doctors. I'm too proud to admit there's issues. I'm, you know, men are very standoffish generally. And when it yes. comes to especially mental health illnesses and stuff like that. So, yes, what, and, and, for, and for very good reason, it makes sense. It's understandable that we don't want to talk about our weaknesses because what are we judged on? We are not judged on how well we deal with our weaknesses. We are judged with how much strength we have. That's, yeah. you know, we're supposed to be strong and we don't want to admit that uh, we might not be able to hold up the team all the time. Um, and it makes it difficult for us to admit, Hey, I'm, I'm out of the game right now. I, I can't, I can't hold up my end of the deal. Uh, can you give me a hand? You know, I'll, I'll return the favor when I'm feeling better. It's just, you know, not something that we're encouraged to do and we pay a big price for that. Yeah. Uh, it's so true though. Like, you know, as a, as a young man myself, um, there have been times where I've been, you know, like I've looked at others, other friends, be like, oh, she'll be right. I don't, they don't need, you know, I don't need to say this or that. So what, what was it about, you know, seeing men in, in trouble, seeing men struggling? Why did you go down this path as to want to help fellow men, like your fellow man, I guess you could say? Okay. I'll give you the quick uh, version of uh, how I got interested in male gender issues. Cool. I was on, I was on a co-ed softball team in Baltimore. And after our games, uh, we would all go out drinking and dancing and partying and having a good time. And we played every week and two weeks in a row at the uh, little tavern that we would go to. I was sitting at a table with one of my female uh, teammates and she was telling me, 
about her, her boyfriend. And she went on and on with the tale of woe about her boyfriend. And she ended both times, both women in consecutive weeks ended their stories by saying, and so he's a real jerk. Don't you think? Yeah. And I said, well, maybe, but you know, based on what you're telling me, maybe the way it looks to him is such and such. And I, said something that was perfectly obvious to me as a man as to how the situation she was talking about might look to her boyfriend. And both times, these women said, oh, my God, I never thought of that. Interesting. And then I thought, wow, how could they have not have thought of that? And it just sort of became clear that the male point of view is just not, it's certainly not articulated very well. It's not spoken of. We don't speak about it a lot. We don't feel comfortable talking about, you know, how things look to us. And when we're unhappy and uncomfortable and when we're having a problem, I think we're also afraid of talking to women directly and saying, look, baby, you might not like this, but let me tell you what's up with me. That's hard for us to do. Uh, And and a lot of women don't want to hear it. Um, But I figured, boy, this this is a problem. And so I started a radio show called In a Man's Shoes. And, you know, I started out talking about relationships, but it quickly became clear to me that there were really important social issues involved. I wasn't too far into doing the show every week before I received a press release from a fellow in Baltimore who was doing a conference on black men and endangered species. This fellow worked for the Baltimore Urban League, which was an organization primarily concerned with problems of of inner cities. You know, the ghetto, a lot of marginalized blacks were were, uh, in their mission statement and the problems of of marginalized urban people. And he was doing a conference on black men and endangered species. I'm doing a radio show about men, all men. And I had him on the show and it, you know, it's very clear that A lot of the problems that black men face are certainly connected with racism. There is no doubt about that. Uh, Black men uh, are harmed by hearing that blacks are no good. If you're a black man and you're black, you're no good because you're black and you're inferior. But it's also very clear to me, at least, and I think the statistics give good evidence of this, that it's not just being black that's harming black men. It's the double whammy of being regarded as inferior because they're black compounded by the problem of being regarded as inferior because you're male. And, you know, if you think about stereotypes of men, boy, there's a lot of bad ones, a lot of bad ones. And Women have done a good job of challenging the bad stereotypes about them. You you don't remember it. You're not old enough. But 50 years ago, women had to overcome the idea that they couldn't do math and they couldn't do science and they couldn't make tough decisions and they couldn't be good managers and they cried too much and they didn't really care about business. You know, all of those stereotypes that serve to keep women out of places where they had every right to be. Um, we haven't done a good job of talking about the negative stereotypes of men. And we're sort of afraid to, you know, the stereotypes of men. You know, the, probably the worst one is we're violent. <clears throat> we're violent. All we think about is sex. 
Uh, we don't care about our kids. We don't have any emotions. Uh, we're, we're clueless when it comes to kids, you know, on and on and on. And you think about all of those negative stereotypes. Think about all of the way those negative stereotypes justify in, in the cultural mind and in individual people's minds. It justifies keeping us um, limited and hindered and it justifies presenting barriers to us doing and being the kinds of things we might want to be and do. I mean, if you're a father and you're getting a divorce and you love your kids, if the stereotype is oh, men don't care about their kids, men's are clueless, men don't know how to take care of babies. Well, you know, say goodbye to your kids because you ain't getting them. Hmm. That's that's how's that in a nutshell? No, that's wow. That's that's it, some of the things you said just resonated with me. I know of now yeah, this is. One of those things where this is just purely out of my experience only. I know some men who had went through a divorce and um, have been denied access to their children, even though at the time the wife cheated on the husband, she gets the house, she gets access to the kids and he gets absolutely bugger all, which and in Australia, um, the laws supporting, you know, that, you know, in that field about, you know, men getting support to get access to their children and stuff post-divorce. Yeah. There, there's a, there seems to be more leniency towards, you know, stereotypically the children would end up with a woman, not the, the father yes. generally. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's, and that happens around the world. I just spoke with a fellow in Serbia the other day and he's, he's facing the same situation. And, you know, I mentioned um, father of the father who's getting a divorce or whose wife is divorcing him. Um, it's really not just about fatherhood. I mean, it's really about practically, well, you know, when you're into men's issues as deep as I am, you see them everywhere. Um, but it's got to do with health care. Um, it's got to do with criminal justice. You know, if, you know, if you're a man and you're on the stand and some woman says you did something, well, you got to believe the woman. Believe the woman. Mm. You know, it's, it's also not just negative stereotypes of men that operate against us sometimes. It's also overly, overly positive stereotypes of women that operate against against us sometimes when we're in conflict with a woman and the woman says i'm afraid of him judge give make him leave the house um you know the judge is going to be like well i'm not taking a chance on her being wrong yeah get the bum out of there um it's uh it's it's in multiple aspects of our lives Take health care, for instance. We get much less um, uh, thorough, comprehensive health care than women do. We die six years younger, six and a half years, I believe it is. And um, I don't know what health care is like over in Australia, but in the United States, there's a law called the Affordable Care Act. Its nickname is Obamacare. And it mandates a lot of screenings in routine uh, procedures for women that they don't have to pay for that are not matched by similar uh, procedures and screenings that are mandated for men. Uh, in the United States, there are six offices in the federal government on women's health. There are zero offices on men's health. We die six years younger. It's very easy to disregard us, and we are disregarded. We are in some ways not always, but in some very important ways, second-class citizens. And 
it's very hard for people to think about that because we all grew up thinking and hearing that it's a man's world and men run the world and it's a patriarchy as if every man is at the top of the patriarchy when in fact most men are at the bottom of the patriarchy. Um, it's, it's really, it might, be, it might be the biggest falsehood at work in the world today. You know, I'm biased. This is my life. I care about it very deeply. But it's really, really an incredibly wrongheaded notion that we all are grown, have grown up with. And it's very difficult to confront it and try to overturn it. But that's, you know, that's what I'm hoping to help do. No, fair enough. It's, I guess you never really stop and think about that. I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, like some of the men in my life and yeah, you're right. There's no, in terms of like medic, like in Australia, we have the system called Medicare, which is, we all, it's, it's funded by the higher, the higher earners in the country. So for example, if you earn say over $90,000, you're taxed higher for the Medicare levy. And that's, that's pretty much taxes getting straight back, putting it. So our healthcare system is pretty good. Um, but in terms of like things for men and women, like there's, there's a free just down the road there's a free breast screening truck for women like which is you know to help them detect cancer and stuff um but for men they, they get free prostate exams after the age of 50 every two years i think or something like that so there are things in motion but yeah i guess i'm not educated enough to sort of formally tell you what's there and what isn't um but yeah like as a man like i yeah i never really thought about this um so yeah like it's interesting well, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to think about it you know, they don't want you to think about it. Who's the they? Well, it's the whole culture, really. Um, because, you know, we, we are not fully evolved creatures yet. Um, we are in some ways still pretty primitive. You know, if you think about all the things we do to each other, we're yeah. still pretty primitive. And, um, you know, when we were a, a little tribe of people walking across the grand land, the grasslands of, uh, of Africa, um, you know, we had to specialize uh, because specialization creates some expertise and, and provides efficiency. And if you are living on uh, the knife's edge of survival or extinction, because there are lions and tigers that want to, you know, eat you up. You know, if the men are more, if the men are stronger and better able to kill the attacking animal uh, and women are better at taking care of the kids, well, then, you know, that's exactly what you're going to specialize in. And we have done a pretty good job of freeing women of that primitivity. You know, women are, they had to fight. They had to stand up and say, well, enough of this. But they have pretty well been freed of the absolute requirement that they will take care of the kids at home. Um, men, we have not yet been freed of the requirement that we will be out there on the the, the fringes of of the of the campsite, uh, guarding the campsite and being the first to be eaten by the lion or the tiger. You know our. our our position, you know, a woman's place is in the home. That was what they used to say. And, and no longer do we say that. But, you know, it's also true that in that primitive thinking, the man's place is anywhere but in the home. 
you know, you better be out there protecting the home. And the unfortunate thing for you and me is that home is where the heart is. You know, I mean, what's really the most important thing in your life? It's your relationships. And if you're a father, the most most important thing in your life is your relationship with your kids. And, you know, if you have to make that, if you are a second class parent because of these primitive ideas of where your place is and what your role is and what your and what your abilities are based on certain stereotypes that operate in the culture about men, well, then you're not going to have the relationships with your kids that, you know, make your life worth living in a lot of ways. You know, yeah, men make more money. Okay, what do we do with it? Who do we spend it on? And is that really what life is all about? You know, not really. And we got to admit that. We, we need to admit that. It's hard to admit because the the uh, objection that's thrown up at us is, well, yeah, you make all the money and money controls everything. Well, no, it doesn't really. It doesn't really. There are some things that money doesn't control. And, and, and to the extent that money does control things, there are other things that women have that serve to counterbalance our control over them. If it, can I take a minute to, to paint for you a picture of the way I see it? Yeah, sure. Yep. Okay. So you've heard of the patriarchy, right? Yeah. Okay. So the patriarchy is the male power structure. And it's often um, described as or depicted as in graphics as a pyramid. And it's hierarchical. And, you know, we look at the men at the top. Oh, look at all those men up there at the top of the patriarchy. They have all this power. And again, we don't look at the men at the bottom of the patriarchy who have very little power. And there are many more of them. But, um, you know, the patriarchy is male. And at the top of the patriarchy, what we're all striving to climb toward in the patriarchy is some sort of some sort of power. And in the male power structure, you could you could symbolize male power as maybe a dollar sign, maybe a lightning bolt, you know, it's that kind of power. And people stand across the landscape and they're able to point to this pyramid from a distance and say, wow, look at all that male power. And women will say, yeah, men have all the power. And, and then if some, anybody notices this little pink line, this slow little pink line on the horizon, symbolizes women's position, will say, yeah, look at poor little women. They're in that little pink thing. They don't have any power. They're, they're, they're lowly. Look how low down they are. Okay. That's how we typically think of power between men and women. But the more advanced, sophisticated look at those two power structures requires getting into a helicopter. And you get into the helicopter and you fly up over the male pyramid, that male a hierarchy, the patriarchy, and you look down on that pyramid, it looks pretty thin. It's like a, like a billboard. It's a, it's a facade in a lot of ways. It looks like it could get blown over in a windstorm. And if you look at this little thin pink line from up in the air, looking down from a helicopter, what you see is it's not a little thin pink line. It's, it's a, like a, it's a city. Uh, and that pink line you saw was really a circle of walls. It's, it's a circular wall, a fortress. And at the center of the city, ju- just 
the counterpart of the dollar sign and the lightning bolt that is part of the male power structure, at the center of the, of the female power structure, this city with the pink walls around it, is a big red heart. And, you know, yes, men can say to women, if you don't do what I want, you'll never get another penny out of me. Um, but these days, women can say, I don't care. I make my own money. Still today, women can say, if you don't do what I want, you're not going to get sex. I'm going to treat you like, I don't know if I can say it, you treat you like shit. a bad thing. You can say shit. I can treat you horribly. I can make you feel like that bad thing. Uh, I can belittle you. I can say you're no good. And I can make sure you never see your kids again. There is power in, in women's domain. And we need to we need to get an equal share of it um, because it wasn't good for us to be able to control money and power of, of the political and economic nature. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for men. It's not good for kids. It's also not good for women if they think deeply about it, for them to be able to control completely that big red heart and all of the good things that come from it. Um, now, of course, you know, one thing we have to do that women didn't have to do, since nobody ever denied that money was valuable and important, um, we need to get over the idea that, oh, raising kids is not important, changing, changing diapers isn't very pleasant, you know, as if raising kids and having a primary relationship with your kids is just about diapers. We need to say, we're not falling for that anymore. You have a lot of benefits. You enjoy those benefits. They serve you well. They improve your lives. They make you happier. One of the reasons we commit suicide three and four times more often than you do, ladies, is because our emotional lives are in some ways close to bankrupt. And we're not putting up with it anymore. You're going to have to share. Hmm. There it is. Well, there you go. And if, oh, that was a very detailed uh, visual description. That was cool. And you just made me think um, in my life. Okay. So talking about that power, like um, it's just, it's, you know, the, the fighting for what little victories you can get. The whole thing just sounds toxic. I think, you know, men control this, women control that. It should just be an even playing field, no matter who we are, who you are, in my opinion. Um, I, I agree. I agree. In um, what happened to me, we're talking about relationships, was that in a previous episode, I opened up about there was a woman in my life who faked being pregnant with my kid. And um, through the you know, three or four months or however long it was, there was that hold over me. It was that, you know, I'm, I've got the kid, you know, fucking you're at my beck and call now. And it's like, well, I, you know, in, you know, I, without sounding like a hating on women, just I hate this particular one because she's a piece of garbage. Um, you know, I love women as well. Like there's women in my life who I care for deeply, but that in that moment, you know, I, as a man, you don't have any control over it. And like every time we did a deed, we use protection and stuff. So I found it a little bit odd, but ultimately what it was is that she never stopped seeing the supposed ex-boyfriend she broke up with and it was his kid. She just tried to get me to pay to terminate it. So it was um, that in that moment, I was isolated. I, as a man, I didn't know where to go. So I went to another woman. I went to mum. Like, I was like, what do I do here? And she suggested, she said, well, you know, you're entitled to a DNA test. You're entitled to this and that. So go to her. And if she's unrealistic, just say, you know, on the day I'll see you there or whatever. So. Um, Very good. Good, good for you. But you felt pretty powerless. Absolutely. I mean, 
I mean, biologically speaking, you know, oh, they're like, in in terms of like, I, I there's nothing I could have done at all. Um, yeah. You could just try to appeal to to a human side. Um, I mean, that's it. It's it's casting hope to the wind um, and having yeah. it blow back in your face. That's yeah. what it felt like. Um, along with feeling powerless, what else did you feel? Anxious. What, what else was anxious? Fear. I had genuine fear because I wasn't ready to be a dad. Like, oh, it's like, well, this is going to change my life. And it was, yeah, it, it frightened me. Um, isolation. Um, I felt all these negative things. So when you say isolation, does that mean you didn't talk to any of your friends about it? No, I was too. Who, who wants to? I mean, I was it a pride thing maybe but like who wants to go and say oh this chick i was seeing is knocked up and now she's going to have my kid have the kid despite me who wants to say that um well you know it's interesting i certainly understand that um and and can we before before i mention this can we um throw in the possibility that part of the reason you felt isolated and didn't want to talk to your friends was that you felt some shame yeah there was a there was a probably underlying thing of shame there yeah if i'm honest yeah okay so imagine though that you're a woman and some man did something bad to you do you think that the woman would feel ashamed and would not talk to anybody about it and would feel isolated possibly would i mean it'd always come down to the individual story but you know i i guess so you you don't think women would be more willing to you know, to cry and talk about it with their friends and ask for help. And I mean, stereotypically, probably, yeah. I would, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it would be a good thing, perhaps, if this is, you know, this is not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week, next year. It's going to take decades, probably, uh, for it to permeate completely through the culture. Um, it would be good if we men also acknowledged the truth and felt no shame when something bad happens to us, even if it's at the hands of a woman. You know, that you did nothing shameful. You were the target. You were the victim. Um, and you felt terrible and you felt isolated and you felt ashamed. And, you know, you really had a right to be able to say that to somebody. And it probably would have done you a lot of good to just, even if, even if your, your, your mate is, that's what you call them on Australia, right? Yeah, yeah, mate, yeah. yeah, your mate, even if your buddy, we'd call him in America, a buddy, even if your buddy only said, oh man, that must suck. That would help. Even if that's all they said was, man, that must suck. You'd be like, wow, I'm not alone. Somebody understands. And we don't do that. And, you know, we don't do that. One of the reasons we don't do that is because we picture ourselves being out on the edge of the campsite with our spears and we don't want to let our buddies down. I got this, man. I got it. It's cool. No problem. Everything's great. No problem. But, you know, when it ain't great, you really need to be able to say, hey, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to cut it today. I'm just feeling really bad. Let me tell you what happened to me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There is a, there is, I think Australia is actually pretty good on this. There are some pretty um, forward thinking groups of men mm. uh, and the UK too. I think there's a, 
a campaign that says it's not weak to speak, something yeah, like that. It ain't weak to speak. And there's also weak to sp- the National Are You OK Day. Are you familiar with that? Uh, international. No, what is it? So it's uh, Are You OK Day. So once oh, a year, yeah. it's it's about not just men, but women as well. It's it's about checking in with your fellow man or woman and just saying, are you okay? You know, and if someone seems like they're out of sorts or they're not themselves, just a reminder, just to go, well, hang on, maybe I can just see if this, just check in to see if they're okay. And yeah. a friend of mine, Brooksy, he, um, he hosts a page or he's part of a page called Brothers Unite and it's men helping men talk. Um, so quite often, you know, on there, hey guys, you know, I just had this, well, this is one example of a post I saw, Hey guys, going through a rough time. The wife and I are just divorced. I don't know where to go. What can I do? And there's other men in there who can go, okay, I went through this. This is what I did. These are the resources you can use. So it's it's men helping men. It's awesome. Um, I've used it a few times. And my friend Brooks is on a good thing there. They've got about 25,000 um, followers. Wow. And, um, That's great. Yeah, That's so- great. So, you know, um, be thankful you don't live in the United States then. I mean, because... There's nothing like that here, at least nothing I know about. And I'd be in a pretty good position to know about it if it was happening. Yeah. Things are just really not very, very good for men over here. We're, <clears throat> it might be because uh, women over here are really well organized and really well funded. And they are fierce uh, when it comes to uh, defending against any suggestion that um, they ever do anything wrong or that men ever need any help. And if they do, it's their own damn fault. Yeah. It's, it's uh, so congratulations for Australia and, and, and the UK uh, for, for doing those kinds of very forward thinking and, and helpful and considerate and empathic and, and loving things for their fellow human beings who are male. Mm. So the, you're talking about the, um, you know, the whole, so you've probably seen in your lifetime, the stigma about mental health, you know, it wasn't a thing 20 years ago. Um, yeah. Especially down here. I mean, sometimes I go to my parents to talk about things and, you know, only in the later years, they sort of educated themselves and get it. But like stereotypically older generations past, aren't the most empathetic people because that's the way they were raised. It was drummed into them. You know, like I've gone to people, you know, mentors in my life and you try and get that empathy out of them, but you just can't because it's just not there, which is fine. Everyone's raised differently. You know, um, my parents are good to talk to, but um, so, you know, as society, as it, as it grows, as it goes on in my lifetime, you know, you see the push of mental health awareness and campaigns done. Like there's a, uh, places like there's a, a Australian funded free service called beyond blue where you can have free counseling over the phone or texting as well. It's a free service. If you need times of crisis or whatever, which, which I think is great. Things like the black dog Institute, which also del- it's a charity that delves into helping those who are thinking. Of- so the black dog is a reference to suicide. Um, uh-huh. So I, I work in uh, talking about, like males have higher susceptibility to suicide rates. I work in coal mining. So there's something down here called known as a FIFO or fly and fly out worker. So I'm on the East coast and a lot of my friends fly to the West coast. To, that's where the huge dollars are. And um, there is a high suicide rate in that because 
I've, some women I know go over too, but generally it's men over there working away from their families. And then I've heard of a few stories where the wife has cheated on the man and then man's like feels inadequate, feels used up, doesn't get access to his kids. And then he goes and faces the black dog and he's no longer with us. Like yeah. um, my friend Rory a few years ago took his own wife and it was, it was tough. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm sure it happens with women as well, but just touching on the, the higher rates of suicide, especially in mining um, with men, it's quite significantly yeah. higher as well. Yeah. Do, do these services that you, you're talking about um, that encourage people to reach out, um, do they do any outreach specifically to make the point to men that this service is also intended for them? There, all, there has been. So, okay. So in the last five years, one thing that's been prominent was domestic violence. Now, um, I'm not sure if you're around it, but last uh, in 2019, just, just before the pandemic hit, there was a woman in Melbourne who was followed by a man, raped and killed. Horrendous story. And then from that sparked a domestic violence, you know, campaign you know, about women you know, having the strength to speak up and support networks and stuff, you know, you know, and domestic violence is a horrendous thing. And most case, probably nine out of 10 cases would be the woman is the victim. But I got to stop. I got to, I got to stop you there. Oh, it's fine. I was going to say that there was no, um, sort of awareness about like what about the men who are the victims too like that's what i was going to touch on but anyway yeah well go ahead what do you know about that um what i know is that um obviously statistics will probably say that women are probably more affected than men are but as a man um if that happened to me i mean i you'd be seen as weak you know there's a story have you are you familiar with the story of Catherine knight australia's worst serial killer no. So, okay. So in a place called Scone, which is probably an hour and a half north of here, she was working in the abattoirs that my mum used to work in as well. And she was, she used to, used to cut and skin the animals and win the hides and stuff like that. And she used to belt her husband like full on beating on him. And he said to his mates one night at the pub, he said, look, if I'm not here tomorrow night, you know, she's got me. And sure enough, she killed him skinned him his his uh, body was hung on uh, coat hangers in the doorway and she served the head in, in the crock pot to the children mm. i know very it's a i'll send you the link it's an interesting story um mm. well obviously it's an, it's a horrendous uh, example of it but you know yeah yeah um i i don't know what the situation is in australia it's probably close to the same since we're the same species um but the research over here consistently shows that women and men initiate violence about 50-50. And if there is one sex that does it more than the other, it's pretty clear that women are somewhat more, more prone to initiate violence than men are. Um, this, the research also shows that the prime, one of the primary reasons, one of the primary dangers <clears throat> for women, one of the primary predictors for a woman to be assaulted by her intimate male partner is if she starts hitting first. So women are initiating violence more often. It's a primary cause of them getting attacked back. <clears throat> and... It is true that men do more damage physically than women do because of 
body size and muscle mass. But it's also true that serious physical injuries in domestic violence are relatively rare. Most domestic violence is a push, a slap, a scratch, a punch, a, th a throw. It's not, um, it's not uh, constant, incessant beating. I'm not saying this doesn't happen. But the vast majority of domestic violence cases, incidents are relatively minor, relatively isolated, and they don't get repeated. Um, another thing to add to this is that some domestic violence counselors will tell you that the worst kind of domestic violence is the emotional abuse. <clears throat> and I don't think any of us have any difficulty understanding that women, when they want to be verbally abusive, certainly have the muscles for that. So domestic violence is a pretty, pretty mixed bag, and it's not a problem of men doing it to women. It is also a problem of women to doing it to men. And we got to get over this idea that, well, it must be a problem for women because we all know men are violent. You know, there's that stereotype again. Um, so, you know, if a man is beaten by his wife, so your buddy or the story you told, the fellow was in the pub. He probably had to have a couple beers in him before he would feel safe saying to his buddy, she's beating the hell out of me. Um, men aren't typically going to talk about it. Uh, if they go to a shelter, they're afraid of being uh, blamed as the perpetrator. And he was only beaten by his wife because uh, he must have deserved it. Um, they're also afraid of reporting it to the police because the cops aren't going to believe that this big, strong guy is going to let a woman beat him. He must be the perpetrator. All of these issues make it very complicated. Mm. And, the, the, you know, the first step to un un undoing the problem of domestic violence is to acknowledge that men and women both get out of control sometimes. We both yeah. have fears. We both have insecurities. We both have urges for power and control and revenge. And, 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 and we both, uh, we're afraid sometimes. And that's often a reason that we'll, you know, we'll fight. It's not because we want to, but we're, we're just afraid and we're trying to protect ourselves in a twisted, uh, dysfunctional sort of way. So to end domestic violence, we can't hold it out as a problem that only affects women. Now, I will go so far as to say, on the authority of Erin Pizzi, who was the woman who founded the first battered women's shelter in the world, in uh, the section of London, I think it was London, uh, called Cheswick. And she said she found that um, 60 percent of the women who came to her shelter were as violent as the men they left. Um, but even more important, she got thrown out of the domestic violence movement uh, because she dared to say, this is not just something that men do. And she tells the story of how she was at an early meeting where a woman said, um, it was a, it was about domestic violence and it was sort of about how they were going, how, why domestic violence was an important issue for women to champion and to hold campaigns about because it served the purpose of some of these women, not all women, but some women 
were very interested in making sure that the family was women's domain and always would be the women's domain. And if you want to get a man out of the family, if you want to get him, you know, to stop trying to have an influence on the kids as if you're the only valuable and important parent, you can get rid of him by saying he beat me. And that's Aaron Pizzi saying this was very much about, not entirely, but very much about women maintaining control over families. And that's a sick thing. And I don't like saying it, but we got to acknowledge the truth of these matters. In this episode, it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not one gender is better. It's just acknowledging the fact that these things happen. And yes, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with chatting about things like this to come to light. Cause that's what we're here for. We're here about, here to hear about interesting stories and raise awareness on such things like I did last week with the Crohn's episode. So, you know, like, I, you know, it's great. Like that we're able to have this intelligent conversation about it. And, you know, it sucks because you just made me, you took me back. I was a a childcare worker for about 18 months when I was 18 and the amount of weird looks I'd get from the parents coming in. um, And some of the, my friends in my life are male teachers as well. And, you know, there was always that, what are you doing? You know, like that stereotype of, you know, what's a male teacher doing here? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the stereotype is you're a sexual predator. Potentially, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it sucks because the amount, yeah, the amount of weird looks I get and, you know, hit on by some of the young mums, which is nice. But um, it was, um, yeah, like just I, from my experience personally, it was just, I felt inadequate just going to do my, my job. And like, I was, there's not one violent bone in my body. Like there's, if I'm going to go ahead and do something evil like that, but you know, there's always that stigma of what's a man doing here, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's a bad thing for the kids who are in those homes because they need to develop trusting relationships with men because men are going to be a big part of their, their futures one way or another. Um, it, it's bad that we don't have more men in the early education grades. And, you know, you will hear teachers, male teachers of early education saying they got out because they were tired of the stigma, the, the suspicion. They were afraid of being falsely accused. I'm a retired social worker. And, uh, you know, the stereotypes about men are certainly evident in social work. Um, you know, both as clients and as workers. And that's bad because, you know, social workers are involved in trying to solve some really basic fundamental problems of families and relationships and, and children. And if the only point of view we have is the woman's point of view, and if the stereotype is the women are always right and the man is always wrong, well, geez, some good fathers are going to get kicked out and some bad mothers are going to be given uh, multiple kinds of support. Mm. And that's, and you know, hearing that, that stigma, that's why we have these discussions to try and get that stigma gone. Um, so have you, you've written some books on this too, have you as well? Yes. Um, in 1994, uh, I had a book published uh, by one of the major New York publishing houses it was called goodwill toward men and it was a book of interviews with 22 women who felt goodwill toward men 
uh, all of them, almost all of them, maybe all of them, I'm not sure, but most of them uh, for sure identified as feminists. Um, but they were quick to point out that they were the real kind of feminists. And these other people who were making trouble for men weren't really feminists. Well, what was, what's defined as a, a traditional feminist? Like, well, what do they you mean? Know what? So, so the traditional definition of feminism, I think some dictionaries probably still say that, is the movement for equal rights between the sexes. Now, it's called feminism, which sort of suggests that the bias is that the only person who suffers lesser rights are women, and there is never a way in which we need masculism, you know, to achieve equal rights uh, or to contribute to the pursuit of equal rights between the sexes. Um, but the basic definition is equal rights between the sexes. Yep. Um, I think now, you know, it's not clear what exactly the definition is. There is no feminism central, uh, you know, there's no certification board for whether or not you're a feminist. Uh, but it certainly seems to me that among some women, at least, who call themselves feminists, they will deny this, of course, but to me, it seems clear that some women who consider themselves feminists are really not about equality between the sexes. They're about more and special rights for women, basically whatever women want, because women are superior and they deserve it. I think female supremacy is a very big problem. The idea that women are supreme, better than men, is a very big problem. Okay, so you know we're talking about feminism. So the the I just watched a series. It's twenty to one, and there was an episode on the feminist movement in the sixties, especially in the United States. Um, for that, you know, because for a long time, as you said, society would perceive the woman as the homemaker, as the you know, the stay at home, look after the children, you know, and as the decades have progressed on, you know, the fight for equality and stuff, which is, which is great. I think everything should be equal. The right person for the right job based, no matter who, what your background is, if you're the right, if you had the right list of bona fides for that role and hell yeah, you should get it. But, you know, you also hear about um, the big pay gap, say take sporting, for example, the NRL here, the wages of men is a lot higher than women. And I'm sure it's the same for basketball, baseball, gridiron, whatever it is. Let me tell you what else it's the same for that nobody talks about. Yeah, for sure. Think about the supermodels. Yep. They're, they're mostly women. Yep. The, the, the uh, amount of money that female models are paid is uh, astronomically higher than the amount of money that male models are paid. Yeah. Now, you know, it, what, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it, why it is the way it is, um, you know, stereotypically that the male game of all these sports is watched more, therefore can generate a higher revenue, therefore they're going to want to look after their players more. You know, so there's a campaign on going on down here for the, the, the national soccer, women's soccer team, the Matildas. Um, FIFA is the governing body of trying to, or if they haven't already, try and make the wages the same as the men, which is great because now that women's soccer in Australia is on the rise and the Matildas are a great team, there's more interest getting in there, more, more revenues coming in. So therefore it's then proportionate to pay the players the higher wage. Had it been the same with all these other sports mentioned, I'm sure that the pay gap would be reduced. But the fact is 
the men's game of NBA is going to generate higher than the WNBA, for example. I think that's the reason why it's not, you know, the, the gap isn't, there's still a gap there, I think. Yeah. And, and that's complicated. And, yeah. and, um, you know, those female athletes are amazing. And there are some people who think that the women's game of basketball is more interesting and exciting than the men's game. Yeah, um, sure. but, but still, you know, it's the men who are, who are, you know, getting the big TV contracts and drawing the crowds. Um, and I look, I would be all in favor of figuring out a way to, me too. Uh, have uh, female athletes be paid as much as men. It would require, I think, um, changing cultural ideals of women. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there are st- probably still a lot of people who think a woman athlete elbowing her opponent under the, under the basket, that's, that's not ladylike you know, which is crazy, but there's probably got something to do with it. And I would be all in favor of seeing female athletes and male athletes getting paid the same, but at the same time, because it's very, a very similar problem. uh, We have to make sure that male models get paid as much as female models. And the reason that's important is because it's related because just as the ideal man is really strong and good under the boards and can, you know, dunk from, you know, he can dunk the ball uh, over his head by backwards. Um, that's, that's an ideal of man, of men. Um, and so we're willing to pay them more for that. The ideal for women is to be sexy and beautiful and to walk down the runway and show off all the clothes that are part of the trillion bazillion dollar fashion industry. Um, you know, the men models, they're doing just as much work, you know, but they're not getting paid nearly as much it's because, you know, the, the ideal of men is not to strut down a, a runway with fancy clothes on, you know, and so he's just not generating as much interest in revenue. That's, so, yeah. so let's, let's do sports and modeling. And there are probably other arenas in which uh, men are underpaid. Let's make all industries the same. Well. Yeah, as you said, we can make it across the board, and like, and that way, this this pay gap that there is, um, it can honestly fuck off because I think we should it should be even. But you know, it it should it should be even. It's it's pretty clear from the even the government over here, uh, which is no great friend of men, you know, has issued reports saying, look, the the pay gap is primarily for understandable reasons. You know, like women take time off for their kids. They pursue different careers. Uh, they, they don't work as many hours. They don't, they're not willing to commute as far as men are. Uh, they're also not as good negotiating for high wages as men are. I think, but these studies also will say, but you know, there's, there's this like 7% difference that we just can't, we can't figure out what's causing that. And I think I have an idea about what's causing that. Do you, do you ever, do you know anything about the stock market? Uh, a little bit. Um, do, you know what a, do you know what an option contract is? No. Okay. So an option contract is, is an instrument. It's an asset that you can buy on the stock market. Let's say you think that the price of copper is going to go up or it might go up. You can buy an option contract 
that gives you the option. You don't have to, but it gives you the option at some future date to pay for copper at today's price. So if it comes to be that in a year, the price of copper is way high, you can buy it for the old low price. That's an asset for you. It's called an option contract. You are buying the option to do something that you might want to do. Now, you got to pay money for this contract. It doesn't come free. Nobody's going to give you this, this right, this option for free. You got to pay money for it. Yeah. And I think that in the career game, in the job game, in the what do men and women do with their lives game, I think women have more options than men do. And I think that men at some level are making women pay for that. Hey, wait a second. I don't, I don't get the, it's, it's not to buy copper, but it's the right to maybe, um, maybe I'd like to stay home with the kids when they're in, in high school. Maybe I'd like to leave my job uh, and, and work part-time. Or maybe I'd like to work a job where I feel like I'm actually doing something worthwhile. You know, options that men are not really quite so comfortable taking. Because what's the option for men? Make as much money as you can, buddy. It's not 100%, but, you know, that's very strong pressure on men. Mm. And to the extent that men are focused on making money and women have these other options that they can at least consider, maybe be able to get, women got to pay for that. And I think that that's something that needs to be acknowledged. So one of the ways to help lower the pay gap between men and women is what? To make sure men have as many options in their lives as women do. Everything if, a man wants to, if a man wants to stay home with his kids, yes. I mean, you talked about it. Who's the best person for the job? It should all be equal, right? Yep. There are plenty of men who would love staying home with their kids. And the men who do it, will say, man, it's a lot of work, but man, I love it. You know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, and, you know, what's really important is that we all have a balance in our lives. Even the men who want to make as much money as possible need to have a little bit of time with their kids, right? And even, even the women who just want to stay home with their kids all the time and, and be the perfect mother and the perfect homemaker, they want to get out and do something different once in a while. Yeah. We, we all need to have balance and options. And when men feel that we have less options than women do, I think that at some level we resent it. And at some level we make women pay for it. Which is Remember, yeah. you heard it here first. Yep. Jack himself. Patent it <laughs> right now. Um, no, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I've got a, a few ladies in my life who are young single moms and, um, you know, they're frowned upon. They're like, oh, I just want to go blow off some steam. So they'll give the kids to the grandparents and they'll go and have a night out with the girls or whatever, which, as you said, we all need time off. Um, yeah. Whereas I only know one single dad in my life who has his kids all the time. And when he does it, it's frowned upon. You know, yeah. And it sucks. Um, right. Yeah. It's a double standard. Women did a great job of helping us see the double standards that operated against them. Uh, when we men get our act together and decide, We've had enough of what's been going on, and it's time we supposedly people of action and problem solvers and courageous people, when we stand up and say, yep, okay, we've had enough of this, uh, we're going to tell you about the double standards that affect us. 
So and you might not, and you might oh. not like it, but we're going to make you listen and understand what that's life what, is like for us. That's what. So it's going to take a collaborative effort from all parties to sit down yes. in a room, yep, and go in with factual evidence, not a non-biased approach, and not a, you know, you can't go in expecting anything. Just it's, it's like, it, yeah, I agree with you. It's, that's what it should be—a collaborative effort, and we could bridge these gaps and we can negotiate ways to have equality. You know, we can, we can do it. Like it's, it's doable, but people need to put their pride and their bias and stupid opinions aside. There's nothing worse than an uneducated, bigoted hatred, you know, person swelling hatred towards a, a demographic, you know, those kinds so, of people. I'm very glad you mentioned that yeah. <laughs> because we just talked about the book, Goodwill Toward Men, right? The book yeah. of interviews with 22 women who were feminists, who were ready, willing, and able to talk not just about women's advantages. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, not just women's disadvantages as women, but also they were willing to talk about the advantages that they have as women. Plus, they were willing and able to talk not just about the advantages men have as men, but also the disadvantages men have as men. Um, The subtitle of the book was Women Talk Candidly About the Balance of Power Between the Sexes. And guess what happened to the book? This was in 1994. Was it it discontinued or something? It it got canceled. We didn't use the word canceled back then. Do do you have cancel culture over there? Yeah. Okay. TV TV shows getting stuff getting canceled all the time. Yeah, yeah. Or books or whatever. Or or, or comedians being canceled because they said something wrong. Um, That's happened a few times. Rodney Roode, he's a... He was a uh, comedian in the nineties. You know, he's a bit older now, but there was a show he did in front of a, a like a police gala one day, and he told a, a joke, bagging out a policeman, and yeah, that they ostracised him, and he was sort of pariahed yeah. for a fair while. He was off the main yeah. circuit, so yeah. Yeah, it can happen. Yep. So, so in nineteen ninety four, my book was cancelled, even though we didn't have the term back in nineteen ninety four. My book was cancelled. Uh, a bunch of women at the publishing house decided they didn't like it. And uh, they pretty much made sure that it didn't get, uh, didn't get the attention it uh, was on the way to getting. They um, pretty much pulled the plug on it. And that, the book didn't sell very well at all, even though my editor was telling me, oh, my God, I am so excited about this book. It went nowhere because I think you mentioned bigoted, ignorance, narrow-minded people. Yep. Well, sometimes those are women and we need to be able to say that because sometimes they're men, men and women are pretty much the same, pretty much equal. I guess that means that there are some women like that too. And we can't be afraid to say it. Mm. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, things like um, bigoted sexists, bigoted racists, bigoted, you know, uh, it, it, it's toxic. It's absolutely toxic. And I think one thing that we could all, we should all do is if we get the, get the opportunity to is the best people I've met have traveled in their lives and seen a different like culture. And um, mm-hmm. once you, pardon me, once you open your eyes to a different culture, um, suddenly all your first world problems don't seem so bad. Um, for example, I went to Fiji. I've been to Fiji twice. Um, very gorgeous gorgeous nation but the peoples themselves live in villages and huts and and stuff like that and um 
you know, seeing a culture, just how like compared to the Western world, how simplistic they live and stereotypically Fijian people are gorgeous, lovely, happy people, always happy to accommodate you. And we're all like with all the stuff that we have, as opposed to what they have, um, it's funny that the simpler, the simpler things are the happier people. Um, you know, things like yeah. uh, in the Western world, you think of like addictions to social media. You think of, I just watched the social dilemma on Netflix and, you know, young teenagers of today or young kids of today can, can barely handwrite neatly yet. They can open their phone and do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. All yeah. these new problems. It's yeah. I'm going on a tangent, but um, if that sort of half makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. You're talking about um, really what diversity is is best at. You know, diversity uh, brings together different values, different points of view, different understandings, different ways of seeing things, analyzing things. Um, those people in Fiji see life a whole lot different than than we, you know, in the so-called so uh, advanced uh, societies do. Yeah. Um, yeah, viewpoint diversity is, is a valuable and important thing. And maybe that's one of the, one of the worst things about social media. It's just got us all sort of looking at the same things at the same time. And we're so worried about what's trending. I mean, yeah. who, yeah. who, who, who cares that, uh, Kim Kardashian got a new sweater, you know, but that's, that's trending. So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of. Speaking of famous people, you also was talking off air just before. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious about this. You said you went okay. on a date with Oprah. Can we talk about that? Yep. Sure. Okay. So how, how much time you want, you want to give me? I, I oh, can give get, you. There is no, this used to get all No day. time limit. Okay. Well, I'll no. give you the whole story then. Okay. Okay. So I have a friend named Fred Hayward. I, I didn't know him at the time that this story started. Um, but Fred is... Uh, He's a, he's a brilliant man, uh, very articulate on men's issues. And in the, was it the uh, late 70s, I believe it was, he decided he was going to quit his job and start working on men's issues full time. And he did. And he started getting some traction talking about what's really going on with men and, and inequalities for men and biases against men and how things can be unfair for men in some ways. And he started getting some traction and he started getting booked onto TV shows, local TV shows for the, at, at, at the start. And he um, did a tour of a group of stations uh, on the North in the Northeast of the United States um, one of which was in Baltimore, which is where I live. And at the time in Baltimore, there was a local TV show called People Are Talking. And it had this really brilliant young star, a woman from down south somewhere uh, named Oprah Winfrey. And she immediately won the hearts of Baltimoreans. We loved her. She was great. She's a fabulous interviewer, really personable. And uh, she was a big star on People Are Talking. Well, Fred Hayward got booked as one of the guests on one of the episodes of People Are Talking. And the way that Oprah introduced Fred uh, 
was, I, I have the full story from Fred himself. I'm paraphrasing here, but the way Oprah introduced him at the start of the show was, we all know that men don't really have any problems, but somebody wants to talk about it anyhow. Please welcome Fred Hayward. <laughs> And Fred said, look, he was just not in the mood for that this day. I mean, he had heard it before, but he just wasn't in the mood for it. You know, it's, he's dedicated his life to talking about the social importance of paying attention to men's issues. And he was not about to admit or, or let anybody say that men's issues don't exist. And if they do, they're not important. So he said, Oprah, look, proportional to the population. This was back in the late 70s, and I think the number was 18, might have been 19, it was high. Um, proportional to the population, there were 18 times as many blacks in jail than whites. No, 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 I'm sorry, eight. I'm sorry, eight. There were eight times as many blacks in jail as whites, proportional to the population. What does that tell you? And she said, maybe you're, you're, I guess everybody in Australia knows she's black. So she, as a black woman, is, you know, sort of taking offense at this, thinking that Fred must be a racist to raise this point. She says, well, it tells me that blacks are under more social and economic pressure than whites are. And Fred said, yes, exactly. Proportional to the population, there are 18 times as many men in jail as women. What does that tell you? And what it told her... <laughs> was that this interview was not going the way she and her producer planned because they had planned for Fred to be a, a Neanderthal and stupid. And they were, they had him on the show because they wanted to make fun of him. Yeah. So the, they broke to a commercial. The producer came over to, to Fred and said, Fred, I'm sorry, this is not going the way we planned. You need to leave the show. Huh. Yeah, right. He had to leave the show. They came back from the commercial and they filled the rest of Fred's time with a chef who was doing chicken recipes, as if there's a lot of social significance to that. Um, so, okay, so Fred, you know, left the show. Boom. That's part one of the story. Years later, I started doing my radio show about men's issues after, you know, the two women on my softball team. I started doing a radio show. Um, and I got invited, no, and that was my, you know, I wasn't being paid anything for that. My real job was working for a public relations firm. And one of the clients of this public relations firm was a weight loss program. And, you know, it's no secret, Oprah struggles with her weight. You know, she has lost, she's gained, she's lost, she's gained. She struggled with her weight and she's been open about it. And the weight loss program, um, held its meetings in the same development in Baltimore where Oprah lived. And so she learned about it. She heard about it. And the um, head of the weight loss program got Oprah interested in maybe investing in it and um, doing some franchises, expanding the business. And the PR firm asked me to meet with Oprah to talk with her about this. Well, I met with Oprah. At a, at a, at a, a restaurant, a, a, it was a restaurant. We, we, we weren't eating. We, I think we sat at the bar and she introduced me to Long Island iced teas. Mm -hmm. She was delightful, really delightful. She's a very, very, very nice person. 
She talked mostly about her interest in helping kids with their educations. She's really a nice person. Now, this was right before she left Baltimore, the local station in Baltimore, to go to Chicago and where she started doing this national show and became not only nationally famous, but internationally famous. And I'll never forget, she was really, you know, kind of cute about it, very sweet and just tickled about it. So she's talking about how she's leaving Baltimore and going to Chicago. And she said, and do you know how much they're paying me? Mm. I said, no, how much? And she said, $800,000. I said, wow, that's great. So there's, so I had, I was doing the radio show and I got invited to go to the Mensa group in Baltimore. You know what Mensa is? It's a group group of people who score very high on IQ tests. I don't think that necessarily makes them smart, um, but they score high on IQ tests. And so they have a club. It's called Mensa, M-E-N-S-A. I got invited to come to the Mensa group, which was meeting at the Maryland Science Center, of course, uh, to give a talk about men's issues. So at, back at the bar with Oprah, I said, what are you doing Friday night? She said, nothing. I said, I'm going to pick you up at 730. She said, OK. So Friday night comes. I'm on my way to the Mensa talk and I knock on Oprah's door and she opens the door. She says, well, I didn't think you were coming. I said, well, here I am. Let's go. So we hop in the car and we drive down to the Maryland Science Center where I give my talk to uh, the Mensa group. And as we walk in, of course, the whole place is a buzz and a Twitter. It's Oprah. It's Oprah. It's Oprah. And she sat in the back of the audience while I gave my talk. I didn't say to her anything about I knew what she had done to Fred Hayward. I just figured, you know, I'll just let that go and give my talk. And at the end of my talk, I felt very good about this, but I think Fred Fred probably, you know, gets a lot of credit for this too. She said, wow, I never thought of it that way. And, you know, that's my Oprah story. I don't know if it counts as a date with Oprah, but, you know. Uh, I took her, took her, took her home. And then in a couple of weeks, she's gone to Chicago. And of course I never saw her again, but you know, that's my Oprah story. And take some stones to go, you know what? I've got this opportunity to take this woman out. I'm going to take her to a place where I'm going to talk about me. That is, that is awesome. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, I was doing the radio show. I I was, uh, you know, pretty comfortable, you know, talking about the issue and what the heck it was a chance to, you know, it sounds like <laughs> to have a day with Oprah. <laughs> that sounds like something I'd do. So, oh yeah, I'll pick you up at seven. Now we're going to just do everything about Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know well, how much fun she had on that date, but you know, well played, it- sir. That's you know, and to have the you know to have someone who was completely switched off for that and completely closed in terms of like hearing about men and stuff, but so. And for her to, to acknowledge, I never thought about it like that. That's probably the biggest compliment you could receive. Yeah, it, it, it was. And it's really actually sort of like my touchstone. I mean, that's my mission um, is to, uh, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you hear from your listeners. Wow. I never thought of it like that. I mean, Maybe. that would, that would be the, you know, the, the, the best thing you could tell me that your listeners have said. Well, I, even if I I don't have a heap of listeners at the moment, but even if one person goes, well, hang on, you know what? That spoke to me. Um, that's what it's yeah. all about. I mean, yep. people ask me, you know, why are you doing it for? I mean, 
I have intentions to maybe get into the media one day. I'd love to work in radio. I've got a head for it, as people keep telling me, um, which, you know, fuck them. Anyways, but like, I love doing I'm doing this for me. I love hearing stories and shedding light on things. And, um, you know, people have said I should change the name of the podcast, I guess. But like, at the end of the day, if I can uncover these stories or at least help people like be like a beacon and if one person in Australia gets something out of what you're trying to achieve, then that's what it's all about. Yep. Yep. And I will. Good for you. Sorry. Good for you. Thank you. Are, are people telling you they don't like the name life so much? No, no, not really. It's just, they're like, I don't know what it's about. I mean, but in the, in the um, description on all the streaming platforms, it says it's, you know, it's about storytelling and this and that. And, you know, just yeah. a bloke I'm just says, I'm just a bloke having a crack, just a guy yeah. trying his heart out. That's all. Good, good for um, you. Good for you. You'll be a great radio personality. I appreciate that. So yeah, we might have a bit of fun at the moment. So um, each each uh, each show we do is it the, the connective tissue, I guess you could say, is that we all get together and we have a whinge. Yeah. Um, would you like to have a bitchy with Mitchy? Can be about anything you like. Yeah. Now this is all audio. We're not doing any video, right? Yep. Okay, so I can't share a screen with you. Um, I can post it up in the in the description. Okay, I'll send it to you. Okay. I'll send you the graphic of it. This is my. How do you pronounce that word? Is it whinge? Whinge. Yep. Yeah. We'll have a you know what the, we'll have you know a complain. What, do you know what the word is over here? Complain. It's it, no, it's it's the same word whinge except without the g. We talk about whining. Whine. whine yep. Yep. Don't whine. Don't be. Don't be a whiner. Don't be a whiny baby. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you can be a whinger. I'm going to be a whiner. Okay, cool. Are, are you going to do a whinge? Yeah, I'm going to. Yes, yes, I am. You got one? Yep. Okay, well, my whine is um, this poster that I will send you and you can post it. It actually says, I mean, it's not a poster that, you know, some one's person, you know, drew an art class with crayons. It's actually a published printed poster that I first saw at uh, the Women's March um, a little over four years ago in Washington, D.C. after Trump was elected. The, the poster says, women are perfect. And I can't imagine any group, no matter how partisan they are, saying, we're perfect. There's I a, mean, there's what? an Australian expression. It's um, you, you say, oh, geez, you've got tickets on yourself. And what that yeah. means is like, oh, geez, you rate yourself. That's what that sounds like. These, this particular poster, oh, they, they got tickets on themselves, up themselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's my whinge, my whine, that any group of people could seriously think and publish and carry to a demonstration uh, a pronouncement that they, as a group, are perfect just really says to me we're in a heap of trouble here and i'm not just talking about men being in a heap of trouble our culture in which both men and women have to figure out a way to get along it's in a big mess when women think they're perfect and guess what they don't think that about men that's my wine thank you good night <laughs> I, I feel better i feel better now see this is yeah this is also a thing we feel better when we get that off our chests um, yeah me personally um i want to have a whinge about a whine about people's selfishness so recently 
we've had so in australia covid's been really well like the government's really like stepped up and we've had just over 900 deaths um we've had no community transfers for a long time until recently um another spike in brisbane and um people just don't get the the message just you know if you're told to sign into a place if you're told to you know socially distance all this shit and um people just will knowingly having symptoms and knowingly you know still just being selfish and doing whatever the hell they want has resulted in another um like blowout in brisbane you know that's formed a lockdown and a festival with fifteen thousand people who were supposed to go can't go now and so the musicians can't earn their wage and it's just this snowballing effect um it's like the, just for fuck's sake people don't be selfish don't be stupid do the right thing is is there a political dimension to this the reason I ask is because over here, Trump was, you know, the macho man and he didn't think masks were important. And and it became sort of a political thing. If you're a if you're a, a real patriot, if you're a real Trump person, uh, you don't wear masks and you don't let the, the pointy headed scientists tell you what to do. No, this is um, just these are but just the actions of a few. Um, just the actions of a few. I haven't I haven't come across any of that. Because our leader, ScoMo, Scott Morrison, or ScoMo as they call him, he's doing quite well. He listens to the advice of his medical advisors and he just does that. I mean, we're like the states in terms of like each state and territory has their own set of rules. There's no universal thing. And a girl I spoke to last week, Bianca, she's from um, California. And she was saying that, you know, each state and territory has their own set of rules and whatever. And there's no unification between. It's the same here. But they're, they're slowly working towards the same you know, achievement, of course. And, um, and where it was in Brisbane, so that's in the state of Queensland, their premier has been more like stricter in terms of like lockdowns and stuff. So it's surprising it's happened up there. But it's clustered down in northern New South Wales. And that festival, it's just, yeah, that area had now back to mandatory mask wearing and curfews and whatnot. It's, yeah, it's just frustrating, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can certainly understand that. Um, if some people might be thinking, well, I don't need to wear a mask because everybody else is wearing a mask. Yeah. So I'm safe. I um, yeah, I don't know. It's just the selfish actions of a few. It's just like we're nearly there. We, the, the vaccine started to be rolled out here now. Um, we're around to like our second. So healthcare workers have been taken care of. Now the elderly are getting injected and jabbed and stuff. It's like we're nearly there, guys. Just you know, stay the course. We've done so well. Yeah. There was even talk yeah. about opening up a trans Tasman bubble between us and New Zealand to travel between the two. Between you and New Zealand. What kind of a bubble? Like they call it, so the, 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 the East coast of Australia and the West coast of New Zealand is the Tasman sea. So they're calling it the trans Tasman bubble. And uh, so, which means we can travel within, but like between the Pacific islands, New Zealand, Australia, all in this Tasman sea in this area of the world. Yeah. Is, that, is that because the, 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 the pandemic has subsided for the most part? Yeah. So the idea was, is that the cases, uh, if we can have X amount of cases and lower that, um, you know, if we can get to a point that's going to be minimal exposure to the public, then we will entertain the idea of allowing international guests to come in without quarantine and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So it's wow. really, it's really close. Um, Australia and New Zealand are very close to, if not, there's an announcement in the next 
week or two. We might, I might be able to pop over and see my friends without yeah. having to lock down for two weeks in the hotel plus, quarantine. Plus, there are a lot of really nice vacation spots in the Tasman Sea, huh? Oh, yeah. Um, especially along the east. If you go all the way up to Queensland, the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, yeah. Amazing yeah. part of the world. Ah, uh, well, hope it works out. Yeah. What, so, what, what do the people in the other parts of the country think of that? Do they express any? Well, it's it's the same. It's like, you know, I can only speak about my friends around here. I've got some friends in New Zealand and they're all four coming over and visiting. And um, I just, I think it's probably the same as you guys up there. We're just over it. We just want it to finish. We just want to go back yeah. to some yeah. normality. And, you know, I want to be able to see the world. You know what I mean? Like it's, how's COVID life been to you up there? Um, well, How's it been for, I'm almost 70 years old. So, uh, you know, I was, and, and, and I work in an office in my basement. Uh, so I, I stuck around the house for the most part. Anyhow, it hasn't been really terrible for me. Uh, I'm, you know, pretty lucky person being retired and, uh, you know, being able to just sort of hang out in the house and do something that I like doing. Oh, so, good. so, so it's, you, you've had enough of it. You're, you've got a lot of friends that you want to get out and see. And- yeah. I, like, it's the first, so I guess this is another bit you with Mitchie. I, I'm just, the, I've always been a free spirited sort of, I've lived overseas. I've, you know, I've, I've always sort of been a traveler and um, it's just, it's like, it's a buzzkill. Like I want to see the world. I want to be able to take this and record some episodes with friends overseas as well. Like I, I want to, meet some new people and un- un- uncover some cool stories but everything through the power of zoom at the moment you know is probably the best we can do yeah yeah well hang in there yeah oh, we, we've been lucky i've always i've kept my job and you know i've still been working and stuff i'm a i'm a coal miner so i operate the big haul trucks and stuff up in the mines uh-huh and, i heard um, you talking with one of your previous guests about that yeah so we were um I'll highlight on it a few times, but they're 12 hour shifts. It's an hour travel each way. The wage is incredible, but you know, the shift work can be tough. And mm. one of the is ideas, it dan- pardon, is it, is it dangerous work? Yeah. It's high risk work. Yep. So you're in terms of feet, meters to feet. So I'm about 24 feet in the air operating these trucks, about eight meters in the air. And uh, when you're chipping over a tip head, there could be a plummet 30 minutes. What's that? 90 feet drop straight down um oh. like there's all windrow like so along every hall road in the mines there's a, a it's kind of like you know guardrail on sides of roads it's kind of like uh-huh. that but d- just dirt just along the whole way so it's safe but there has been fatalities in the industry in the local area in, in the last 20 years um do, do, do your bosses pay attention to the safety regulations do they yeah. give you the equipment you need yeah, because if they don't, all sorts of that. Yeah, where I work, it's yeah, they're they're really good. Um, because if you so if you don't, then people could die. Like it's it's high risk work for a reason, and you have to take yeah, you know, every mine has explosives because so mm. the the fundamental idea with coal mining is you first drill it. So you know, I don't know how familiar you are with geology, but we so to get the certain coal seams in the ground, it's kind of like a if you look look at a picture like a lasagna it's in layers so uh-huh. to get to so different coal seams are different like it's kind of like cocaine the purer the coal the the you know the, the better it burns the higher it'll sell for it's all mm-hmm. to do with salt and ash content and the, and the purity and all that sort of thing so the idea is 
to uncover these coal seams, mine it, and then replace it back with rock and compact it back in. So you drill the holes, you fill the holes with explosives, blow the rock up, then you dig out, you dig out the, the rock and then you expose the coal seam, mine the coal seam, wash it, sell it to the, to the buyer. That's coal, open cut coal mining 101. It's even more uh-huh. dangerous underground. But uh-huh. um, yeah, so yeah. with with mining, there's a like there's a safety legislation for all businesses, but mining has its own because it's such high risk work, hmm. and you need permits for hot works for explosives yeah. and all that sort of thing. What does your company do with the mine after it's uh, extracted all the coal it's going to get? Is it required to restore the land? Yeah, so there's all the mines have re- have so. In regards to the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA, there's a set of there's like a set of criteria they have to act in in according so they can keep their mining license. So they have to rehabilitate the land. They have to keep um, you know dust and stuff off off site to, down to X amount parts per million. They need to you know there's 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 uh, sound limits. There's uh, dust limits. There's vibration limits. All these things they need to do to keep in, you know, in, in regards to their, op- their ability to operate. And so, you know, say for example, if a mine um, lets off an explosion and a lot of noxious fumes go off site, um, if, if, if there's no adequate controls in place and that's air pollution, then a company could be fined for that. Or if there's, you know, say there's lighting at night and it's in, at risk to the motorist going past, that's light pollution. Uh-huh. So it's, uh-huh. Huh. Um, How yeah. close is the nearest town? Um, some towns are within five kilometers. Um, there's so we turn off on the main highway to go to this mine. I won't mention where it is because I don't have the authority to speak on behalf of them in the media, but we turn off. There's farmland right next to like there's blocks of farmland right next to the mine itself. So a resident, I'll send you an aerial shot of the map, how close some of these towns are. Some of the some of the farms or the homesteads can actually see the gear operating from a distance, so mm. you can quite hear the the dozers tracking. You can hear the explosions and stuff go off. Yeah. Well, what do the what do the I'm, I'm picturing farms. Are there farms? Yep. So what what, it, do, what do the farm animals think of these explosions? Um. Well, I don't know. They probably don't like it, but there's the people that own the land, in my opinion, they don't need to live there. I mean, chances are if or when the mine might expand, they might be able to sell their land for a, for a cost. But um, mm. mostly the farms are located further away from the mine. So the closest settlement town uh, is probably 20 kilometers away. Um, so okay. there's two communities. you got one up north, one down south. Um, and yeah, so they're probably, what, 20, 30,000 people in each. Mm. and um probably more and yeah so they're what? the biggest settlements and you've got little like towns around as well sort of to the northwest what kind of what kind of training did you did you get to do the job you're doing now so i me personally i worked in earthworks and before so i've operated machines that are smaller these are these ones are just bigger versions of those but they offer a traineeship um whereas they it's a it's a competency based on-site training traineeship so you get a nationally recognized certificate trade certificate um allowing like showing you how to you can work in an open cut mine or a quarry so that's nationally recognized plus you get on-site competency based training on the gear there as well 
So tell me about the old timer who taught you. Uh, I had a few. So um, I'm calling Reg. Oh, Reg. He's stuck in his ways and he's your stereotypical cranky coal miner. And uh, he's sitting next to me and <laughs> he's not much on the eye, but my goodness, he can operate a piece of machinery. Mm. And, um, you know, that instilled mining culture, um, you know, it, a lot of this is a, another thing that I spoke about the other week is that the wage is great. It's a six figure wage, you know, don't get me wrong, but it comes at a cost. We work every second weekend. Um, and we work night shifts every week as well. So the weekend just gone, we were rostered on to do seven till seven, three nights in a row. So our Easter's non-existent this year. Um, and that roster changes as time goes on because it's fair. There's, there's a few crews. And then anyway, so I digress. The point I was trying to make was the amount of stuff I've sacrificed personally in my four or five years, I've missed out on weddings, birthdays, mm. uh, you, you name it. And mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, you're a car model. You can afford it. So, that's one thing it's cost me dating wise because I just, I'm sick of hearing that. It's like, well, talking about okay. stereotypes before. Anyways, I digress. Well, I'll read. Yeah, so, but so, so there you go. You're pulling down the bucks, but your big red heart is taking a beating. Yeah. So I, the idea was that joining the mine to me was predicated on the fact I was going to buy my first house. And I've now got said deposit together. So not long now until I get a house. And then when it's all said and done, I'll reassess and see what's going on. Sure, I might take on this uh, radio gig. You might have to go study or something like that. But um, that's why I'm honestly working on this. Anyway, so old Reg, um, you know, he's you're cranky. Yeah. Okay. So this is how we operate. You know. <laughs> um, so in the in the in the trucks, um, you can't. That's not. They're not like a car. You cannot put your foot on the brake. You have to preempt uh, and lock your your truck into gear. Um, so there's a a, a a stick on the side of the wheel called the retarder, which is your braking system. And you, you lock you, you can lock your truck into gear and it automatically retards for you. So say if you've got a full load on, you want to lock it into low gear before you hit the crest of the hill. So it doesn't, because if you try to hit your brakes whilst you're loaded going down a hill or ramp too quick, your brakes mm-hmm. can catch fire and you can have an, yeah. a horrible, horrible like mishap. Wow. Yeah. So Reg is a cranky old guy. Yeah. And he, did you say something about coal miner culture? So coal miner culture is, um, at, yeah, there's some rough people there. There's some um, absolutely cranky bastards. And old Reg, I'm sure, I'm sure they, I'm sure they want to sit and talk with you about their feelings. Oh yeah. If you want to meet a stereotypical Australian, speak to Reg, <laughs> cockhead. But like, good morning, Reg. What's good about it? That's how sour he is. <laughs> and he, um, but you know he's got an, an immaculate home he's got all the toys he's got but he's bitterly divorced i say bitterly mm. because it was not good it went down mm. so badly mm. uh one of his sons doesn't speak to him um you know he um he said i said what would you be doing if it wasn't for this he goes i don't know this is all i've ever known mm. so it's you know and plus in an industry where it's very much dependent on how much coal you're selling every eight years on average is a downturn so a lot mm. of people get laid off so it's mm. like it's not secure working like you might have a role for the government or something. So it's, yeah, it's. How long have you been working? It's certainly not for the faint hearted. Shift yeah. work in general isn't for the faint hearted. How, how many years have you been working? Uh, four and a half in this. So you five. got another three and a half years before a downturn. When was the last downturn? Um, well, it was, um, there was probably 2013 or 14. And with COVID now, um, it's, it's sort of initiated an unofficial downturn now. So 
there have been a lot of contractors made redundant around the Hunter Valley just because there's no demand for it. I mean, there was the, without getting political, the China, China is a big, big importer of Australian coal, but because of the pandemic and, you know, the Australian government seized. So in the past, um, foreign governments could acquisition assets willy nilly. The Chinese government has a 99 year lease for the Darwin um, terminals and stuff up there. So they've leased out the port in Darwin for 99 years. So the public was had enough of this garbage because a lot of our stuff has been sold off internationally. So now the government's brought in a thing where it has to be reviewed and approved by the premier state premier of that state. So say Mm -hmm. the Chinese government wants to buy farming land. It has to be approved by a governing body. Now they can't just Mm -hmm. do it. And since that's happened, China's well, the stereotype is that the Chinese government has gone, well, fuck you, Australia, we'll get it from somewhere else. Mm. And because of that, that and the way that affects us is that a big importer of our coal, there's just not as much demand there anymore. So therefore we don't need the manpower. So hence the layoffs. Yeah. Yeah. So so the Chinese might want to buy farmland because they think there might be coal under it? Possibly. Some so yeah. some of the big mines in the Hunter Valley are owned by Yen Coal. Yen Coal is the Chinese government mining. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, they do have some skin in the game over here. Um, so, but, you know, that's, that's their business. So it's, yeah, it's owned publicly and privately by the Chinese yeah. government, I believe. Yeah. Okay. I, when I think of China and coal, I think about their, their air pollution problem. Is, has that cut demand for your products? Um, well, yes and no. Like there's always... There's always that. Um, so I'm just having a look. So Yangzhou Coal Mining Company owns Yan Coal, which is the owner of some of the pits here, not the one I work in. Um, Yan Coal is a public company listed. Yeah, so there's ties to a lot of Chinese um, conglomerate companies there as well. So anyway, so um, anyways, I digress. Um, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> I was just wondering about whether, whether China's uh, air pollution problem is cutting into their desire to burn coal? Uh, well, as, as we go forward, of course, the need to wean out fossil fuels is, is becoming a thing, which I get, you know, but I, I can't give you an educated answer on that because I don't know, but wait up, from what I understand, the Chinese uh, government themselves are quite uh, efficient in regards to burning coal. Like it's, I think just because the demand is there's, with one point something billion people in the country. I mean, the need for power is there. So they're going to yeah. need to yeah. supply them somehow, I guess. And maybe they yeah. look towards a, a greener option. I'm not sure, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you've got a, at least a couple more years to put the money together, buy that house. Looking at one this afternoon. So hopefully. Wow. Good for Ho- you. Hopefully. Good for yeah. you. Good um, for you. I appreciate that. And also, um, yeah, it's it's this has been an interesting conversation actually. It's gone on for quite a long time. <laughs> it's been fun. It's been yeah. real fun. But um yeah, is there anything else that you want to go over or wrap it up or um I guess we can wrap it up. Um I uh you know, I wish you all the best and uh keep podcasting because you're you're good at it. You got a real nice style. I appreciate that. And we will keep in touch and I'll get you to send me the links to all your socials and um, your books and stuff. And I'll put those in the bio underneath. 
Okay. But, and don't uh, forget women are perfect. I'm going to send that to you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And what I'll, I've got a Facebook page too. So I'll post it on the socials and people Great. can check that out. Terrific. I'll, but I appreciate your time and, um, We'll keep in touch and um, thank you, Mitch. It was, it was a great opportunity and I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, I'll let you know when it's completed and stuff. And yeah, but thanks for your time. Great. All right. Thanks. Take care. You too. Bye.